Thank you. Major, I, I wonder if you remember one of those volunteers from Missoula. His name was John Rankin, my father. Experience that time. So, I don't know if it was that influence necessarily or others in my life, but the first vote by the first woman elected to Congress was a vote against war. Not only was it the most significant thing I ever did, it was significant in itself. I don't mind if people remember me for that vote, but I don't want them to remember it other than a woman standing by what she believed. A woman finally having an official voice in our government so that she could make a stand for the things she believed in, the issues that she wanted changed. That's what they can remember me for that. Vote for if they please, but I'm afraid they'll remember it for something else. That uh, I'm against our government in some way. Or, or unpatriotic. Nothing could be further from the truth. I not believe at that moment it was important for a woman to stand by what she believed. And that now women have the vote. I like to think that war will end as a way of solving conflict. Let's look out over this peaceful valley today. Peace. Well, I came into politics uh, somewhat later in my life. I, I uh, didn't have it as a lifelong goal. Raised east of Missoula. We spent summers on the ranch there, and we moved into town during the winter so that we could all go to school. And, uh, well, my father, he expected us to work hard. He gave us lots of responsibilities. But then we were also allowed to play hard, and for some reason I thought every child in the country grew up the same way. I went to college, it was expected, but what was a door open for women to get education in those days was a door closed and that no one was ever expected to use it. No one taught us how to have careers in anything but marriage and family, and when I was finished with my, my education, I went back to the ranch, and well, I didn't want to get married but I didn't know what I wanted to do. And then two trips changed my life. My brother Wellington was going to Harvard, to law school, and I visited him one time. We, we took a, a train into New York City for the weekend, and uh, I'd never seen such a place. Coming from the prairies of Montana and seeing that city, skyscrapers, and uh, such opulence and wealth, on uh, Madison Avenue, and then a few blocks away, in a place called the Bowery now, people were living in tenement slums that I wouldn't let my animals live in. And I thought, how could there be such a disparity in a country with so much resource? And, and uh, I went back to Montana, took another trip to the West Coast, visited San Francisco in 1907, the year after the earthquake, and I saw the same thing. So much of the wealth and resource in the hands of so few, while the immigrants were, were coming to this country for a better life or opportunities for their families, there was nothing available to them in the same way that it was available to just a few. And I thought, there must be something I can do. And I tried social work for a while. I, I was... Uh, a social worker at the Seattle Children's Home there in the state of Washington, but I was no more than a glorified babysitter. None of us were. Children brought to us so broken in spirit and in health that no one wanted them. There comes a time when philanthropic 
Good deeds and good thoughts are not enough. There were no laws protecting the women and children in those days, and there still are very few. But I thought the only way to get people to make laws to protect the people who have no voice are to give voice to the people who can make the laws change, make them different. And so, it just so happened the year was 1910, and the state of Washington was putting women's suffrage on the ballot. Now, in 60 years, only four states had given women the right to vote. All Western states, but 14 years, and what was the holdup? Liquor. <laughs> what man is going to vote to give women the right to vote if he thinks the very first thing she votes for is prohibition? I believed in keeping the issue single. Be for nothing but suffrage and against nothing but anti-suffrage. Get the labor vote, but quietly. Don't antagonize big business. Try to have every voter in the state ask by some woman to please vote for the amendment and, oh, yes, of course, always be good-natured. <laughs> that's not easy. When people are calling you names and throwing things at you, spitting on you, tripping you in the street. What are people afraid of? The little boy climbed up on his father's lap and said, Pa, are you afraid of anything? Well, Pa, what if a big uh, bear came into our yard? Would you be afraid of that? His father said, no. And I would. Well, you wouldn't be afraid of a, a mountain lion or, or a wolf? His father said, no. The little boy thought for a minute and then said, Pa, is Ma the only thing you're afraid of? <laughs> our men in the West aren't afraid of anything. And they're not afraid to give their women the right to vote. Yes, it is right that a woman be in her home, raising her children. But how can she keep a good home if she has no influence on the activities of the community that influence her home? She should be there for her child, who is suffering from typhoid. But she should also have a say in the conditions that would keep that typhoid from spreading. And every county in the state of Washington Past women's suffrage, 1910, and oh, I, I uh, no longer wondered what I was supposed to be doing with my life. I got involved with the suffrage activities, and I traveled. I saw Arizona, California, Ohio. All of them give women the right to vote. There was new energy in the movement. Uh, Montana, now in 1911, the legislature had debated suffrage here every session. Uh, but it never got enough to be put to the voters. Finally, in 1914, it was, and it passed. Not by much. Oh, Montana is a big state, and we had to work very hard at the grassroots level. The Anaconda Copper Mining Company, who owned most of, or influenced most of the newspapers, they didn't want to see women voting. And, uh, well, Montana's communities are far apart, but once you get there, they're well-politicized and well-organized. So we traveled and traveled and traveled and made sure every woman understood what this privilege, this right, would give to her. And it did pass in 1914. And, well, didn't I think, after all my hard work, I ought to be given a higher position in the National American Women's Suffrage Association. But somehow, in the course of my work with them, I'd gotten a reputation for being very difficult to work with. 
Bossy, they call him. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think an hour will be job is worth doing. It takes as long. And it was taking too long for this simple idea of women being citizens and having the right to vote and a voice in their government to take a hold. And so I left the movement for a while. I traveled. Went to New Zealand. Women had been voting there for 20 years. Nothing bad had happened to the country at all. In fact, some very good things had happened. Laws about education, protecting children, child labor laws. Of <sighs> Women are half the people. They ought to be half the Congress. I decided to run the Congress of the United States. And when I told my brother Wellington about that, <laughs> Didn't understand at first. He thought I meant state legislature, which would have been enough of a, of a step forward, I believe. But no Congress of the United States, and I knew I could do it. Montana's population was such that that it had been given another seat in the House of Representatives. So two, two seats available. I was a well-known name. I traveled the state, every town, every person knew who I was. Believe just like I did during the suffrage campaign that it's the issues, it's the candidates that people should be voting for. My platform was very simple uh, preparedness for peace. There's a war going on in Europe. But Montanans were 16 to 1 against participating in that war. 16 to 1. Preparedness for peace, votes for women, laws protecting women and children, and prohibition. And I told Montanans at every turn, every 6,000 miles that I traveled that year campaigning, that they should find the candidates that address the issues they want. Oh, I ran on the Republican Party. I needed to have a ticket. But, but it isn't the party. It's the issues. And to vote responsibly, you look at what's available and you vote for the person who can make the changes that you want to have made in your society. And so. I told one story, the previous Congress had voted $300,000 to study hog feed and $30,000 to study the needs of children. So, if the nation's hogs are 10 times more important than the nation's children, then we have a problem. Someone in Congress to speak for those who have no voice. So, the first vote I ever cast was a vote for myself. And then, oh, I waited all day, I waited all day. Finally, I couldn't, I couldn't wait anymore, and I, I picked up that receiver, and I rang up the Chronicle, the Missoula Chronicle, and I said, now what? The election, the election of President Wilson, how, how did he do? Yes. Mm -hmm. And that woman, that Duke, that Ginevra, how did she do? <laughs> I was told Jeanette Rankin had not succeeded. Montana's a very big state. And when all the towns in the eastern prairies, when those results started rolling in, why, Jeanette Rankin had taken that by a, well over 7,000 votes. Um, so I was on my way to Washington. First stop, New York City, where I addressed the National American Women's Suffrage Association, the same ones who told me not to stick my neck out and run for Congress, before women had the right to vote across the country. What if I failed? I would make a laughing stock of the entire project of theirs to get women to vote. 
but I secretly think they wanted someone from the East they'd been working with for a long time to see women voting. And I secretly think they wanted someone from their society, from uh, someone more educated. I don't know. But they got me. <laughs> what I spoke about that day was democracy in government. How we need more of it. More social democracy. More political democracy. More war in Europe. We hadn't been attacked. This would be a commercial war if we did get involved. The minute I was elected, my friends, my family, they all started to hound me. Jeanette, if it comes to a vote now, you must vote for war. You must vote like a man. Well, now that presupposes that all men vote for war, and they don't. And I'm not a man. What, what was all this worth if I get here and, and adjust my perspectives on what's important to satisfy a majority of, of who? Of people who've been thinking the same way for so long? Oh, but Jeanette, if you don't vote for the war, you'll show that women are weak and they have no place in public service. <coughs> You vote for the war, you'll be making, uh, for, against the war, you'll be making a needless sacrifice because you won't be reelected. Well, let me tell you about sacrifice. What about the towns that are destroyed by war? What about the communities that are torn apart by war and the young men and everyone who give their lives during war? That sacrifice. And I won't send a young man to war in order to save my job. Little good it will do to save democracy for the people if we haven't got any people left for the democracy. So, I set off on a speaking tour. It was in March 1917. We weren't supposed to have a session of Congress for a while, and so I set off on a speaking tour, but President Wilson called us all back to Washington in late March, and we all knew why, but for a moment there, before all the discussions of war burst open over Washington, D.C., now I experienced a moment of triumph on behalf of all women when I walked onto the floor of Congress as a participant, not an observer. Then, of course, the talk of war. I told my friends and my family I would listen to only the arguments for the war, and if there was any reason to change my mind, I would. Got back to a, a person I knew in high school. Parents across the prairie, 1880s. They were told at that time to be ever vigilant for the Indians who were not happy about all these people coming into their territory. And sure enough, one morning, that little wagon group, that little traveling party, woke up and they were surrounded by mounted warriors. Well, the men in the party grabbed their guns. My friend's mother grabbed him. And holding her baby close, she ran across the ground that separated the travelers from the Indians, and she handed that baby to who she thought was the leader of the group. Took a hold of that infant. He probably never saw a white child that close. And he handed it down the row of his compatriots there. And they handed the baby back to him. 
baby to his mother, and they all turned and rode away. That woman, that day, taking the most precious thing she had, the most precious thing we all have, our children, the next generation, she reached across the barriers of race and language and culture, and she stopped bloodshed that day. And if all women had a voice, and they used it with that much courage, couldn't we stop war? Couldn't we end war as a way of solving our difference? And the vote finally came now. Goodbye, what I believe. I want to stand by my country, but I cannot vote for war. I vote no. Forty-nine other people voted no that day. The vote was 50 against 373 for, nine not voting. And my brother walked me home. In the wee hours of the morning, it was, of all days, Good Friday. And he said, you've crucified yourself. <laughs> you won't be reelected. I told him I didn't care about that. I wanted to know what people would say about me 50 years from now. <coughs> and of course, the press had to pick up on that vote. Jeanette Rankin, pawn of the Kaiser. Jeanette Rankin, member of the German army in the U.S. Jeanette Rankin, crying schoolgirl. Jeanette Franklin, a sentimental old fool, a disgrace. Forty-nine other people voted no. Were they a disgrace? And that is what they wanted to know. Uh, did Jeanette Rankin cry? Well, I'll tell you right now, I had no more tears left that day. I did not cry. They asked my friend, Fiorello LaGuardia, a new congressman as well. Did Jeanette Rankin cry? He said, no. I don't know. I couldn't see for the tears in my own eyes. <laughs> well, the voice, the voice of democracy had spoken. So I worked for the war effort. I voted for the draft, war bonds. All the things that I went to Congress for that uh, were so dear to me were put on the back burner. I introduced a bill, the Rankin-Robinson bill, about education for, for women, um, hygiene, uh, <coughs> education about maternity care, uh, all set aside. But what I really went to Congress for, and I stand for, was the right to vote for women. And uh, when it finally came to the floors of Congress, it was debated in the Senate, debated in the House. It was 1918. Women were picketing outside the White House, being thrown into jail, being force-fed in prison. I distanced myself from them because I didn't want people to associate, associate the idea of women voting with such violence that was occurring against these women, and yet their bravery, their courage, standing up, standing up, to what was happening around them. There was one sign outside the White House that said, President Wilson, in your war message now, he said that he will fight for the things we've always fought for in this country, for the right of those who have no voice in their government to participate in it. 
20 million American women do not have a voice in their government. When was he going to think about them and stop worrying about the poor Germans who had no voice in their government? And the women that stood up, they... People see and finally debated the House, the Senate. Finally, they came to rest in the House, and I was ready. January of 1918, and I said, we, as a country, are born in a land of unparalleled resources, a people imbued with the buoyancy of youth and determination to make their dreams of freedom come true. But something is still missing. Babies are dying from cold and hunger. Soldiers are dying from lack of a woolen shirt. Could it not be that men who have spent their lives thinking in terms of commercial profits find it difficult to speak in terms of human needs? Could it not be that the women of the country have something to offer at this time? We voted for this war, not state by state, but by federal action. Shall our women, our home defense, be the only fighters in the struggle for democracy who shall be denied federal action? How do we answer the question, gentlemen? How do we describe the meaning of democracy when a Congress that votes for a war to make the world safe for democracy denies the small measure of democracy to the women of the country? Women's suffrage passed then, January of 18, in the House, but it would be two years and four votes before it would pass in the Senate. And then another nine years, nine years, it felt like nine years, <laughs> nine months before it was ratified and added in August of 1920 to the Constitution in the same wording that Susan B. Anthony proposed. I do want to be remembered for a vote, but not the one maybe you think about. I want to be remembered as the only woman who voted to give women the right to vote. Something I could do while part women have the vote. I, oh, my friends and I, we kind of sit around and speculate. What will the world be like in 100 years? 2020. Well, there'll be laws protecting the children. There'll be opportunities for education for all. 